This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hello, this is Russell Moore. You're listening to my podcast, and this is a Cross and the Jukebox episode. We examine uh, music and culture and religion and roots through the grid of country music and some other forms of musical expression from time to time as well. One of the things that helps is if you hit subscribe or wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. And if you like this uh, program, it would really help if you would go and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts because that will help other people to find us. So on this week's episode of The Cross and the Jukebox, I'm not going to talk about a particular song or even a particular artist, but a particular for lack of a better word, mood (laughs) that takes place in country music. Uh, When my boys, my oldest boys, were really young, uh, Ben and Timothy, I remember saying to them one time, where would you like to go on vacation this year? I was expecting them to say a theme park or to go camping or something like that. And they both yelled out, Lukenbach, Texas. And I realized we might listen to too much country music around our house because they're, of course, uh, referencing the song that Waylon Jennings uh, sings. We got to get back to the basics to Lukenbach, Texas with Waylon and Willie and the boys. And I I just said, eh, not this year. They said, well, someday will you take us to Lukenbach, Texas? I thought, you know, yeah, maybe, but uh, it's going to be kind of disappointing to you. No offense to those of you who live in Lukenbach, but I think they were thinking it was sort of the equivalent of Disney World or something like that. And Lukenbach has an, uh, a place uh, where the, the music was played, but it's it's not. Uh, it's not probably whatever they had uh, imagining in their mind. Now, now the reason that uh, that that shows up in the song, we had to get back to Waylon and Willie and the boys and Lukenbach. That's an entire sort of subgenre within country music, and it's one that I've been thinking about a lot lately because I did the interview with uh, Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan on Signposts about uh, their documentary series that they did on PBS, Country Music, and then the book that came out of that. Both of them are excellent, by the way. If you haven't seen them, you really you really should. But I noticed, and I mentioned to both of them, a theme that kept coming up, uh, especially in the, in the latter part of the series. And it was things uh, along the lines of this. There, there's a quote from Tom T. Hall that says, everybody in Nashville was doing whatever they were told to do. And he said, Willie, meaning Willie Nelson, went back to Texas and said, to heck with it. I'm just going to be Willie Nelson. So he taught everybody a lesson. And back in Texas, uh, Nelson would start over and revive his uh, his life and his career. And and you see this happening kind of repeatedly uh, through here. They they talk about this happening with Buck Owens. I, I'm going to be myself. We'll talk about that more when we talk about Streets of Bakersfield or Marty Stewart uh, when when he realized he had gotten away from who he was. 
or e- even uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, they, they quote Roseanne Cash saying that she, uh, in those later years, she started to see a change in her father. And she says, this is a quote, everything was new again. He was back. It was like the light shined on him again, and he was grateful and relieved that somebody saw his essence and who he was and just wanted to bring that out, just wanted him to be Johnny Cash again. Now, that that shows up uh, repeatedly. Outlaw country has a lot to do with that. And uh, sometimes people think outlaw country, they think, well, it's about literal outlaws, uh, meaning uh, people who are outside of the the literal law uh, and of course some of it is uh, there there are obviously uh, some of those songs that are talking about thieves and robbers and gunslingers and and what have you but that's not what outlaw country means it means outside of the standards of the Nashville establishment of the time and so it would include Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Chris Christopherson, uh, singer-songwriter. I would include Johnny Cash uh, in, in terms of outlaw country. Not you know, Some people wouldn't, but, but I would. And so if you're thinking about outlaw country, you have to understand – the, the Nashville sound. So the, the description that, uh, that, that took place here of outlaw country is that they were, they were violating the rules that had to do with what a, a song ought to sound like and the sorts of things that a song ought to deal with uh, lyrically. Now, the, the way that the Nashville sound came about is there was a, a softening of country music and a move toward pop music because there was this understanding that's what people want to hear. Most people are listening to top 40 popular radio. So we're going to move in that direction. So it's, I'm not equating because I think there's a lot of good in the Nashville sound, especially at the beginning of it. A a friend of mine, uh, Robert George at Princeton uh, said to me once that uh, the Nashville sound and the Bakersfield sound are like uh, Pope John Paul II described the western and eastern wings of the church, the two lungs uh, or two wings of the of the church. Uh, I, you know, there's probably something to that analogy. But the Nashville sound ultimately became sort of like uh, what happened with New Coke. Uh, where uh, Coca-Cola says, you know, people like Pepsi and people like Diet Coke, so let's change Coke to to taste more like that. So that's what Waylon Jennings is talking about in um, in his song um, about. Uh, I don't think Hank done it that way. Rhinestone suits and new shiny cars. We've done the same thing for years. Uh, we need to change. So these were people who were doing things differently in Nashville. They were out of step, but they actually were getting in touch with an older tradition as well as some newer ways of of doing things. And they were, in the words of of one journalist, about the only folks in Nashville, he says, who will walk into a room where there's a guitar and a Wall Street Journal and pick up the guitar. Now, What's kind of ironic about this is that the outlaws and their and their allies, they had songs that the executives, the music uh, executives down the street from where I am now on Music Row in Nashville, 
they would say, well, they're too gritty, they're too intellectual, or they're too country to be the ones that could could bridge and could cross over into other markets. But these were the people who actually did. So you had so-called rednecks and so-called hippies who both loved Johnny Cash. Uh, just think about the sort of audience that you would have at a Willie Nelson concert and, and how different those, those cultural uh, and political and, and, and otherwise understandings would be. And so these were the people who were, for lack of a better word, exiled from, from Nashville. And the exile from Nashville turned out to be a good thing for them and a good thing for country music. So in the um, documentary, the country music documentary, uh, there's a section that says that quotes Dave Hickey from Country Music Magazine saying, going back to Texas has sure been good for Willie Nelson. You get the impression that when he was living in Nashville, he was sending out his songs like a stranded man sends out messages in bottles. And that when he moved to Austin, he suddenly discovered that all those bottles had floated up to shore among friends. Now, I think this hits at something that's really important, and it's important beyond uh, country music. I think it, it hits at the nature of authenticity and integrity. Now, there, there, Charles Taylor writes about secularization and about expressive individualism and about authenticity as being a primary value there. And, of course, we've seen authenticity uh, in terms of the existentialists of the uh, late 20th or mid to late 20th century. And we've, we've seen authenticity show up in some really sub-Christian ways. But rightly understood, authenticity, I think, is about integrity, or uh, Eugene Peterson would call it congruence, so that the inside and the outside are lining up. One's One's inner life and one's outer life are congruent. What, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the danger of hypocrisy and, and artifice. Now, there can be a sense in which, as anything else, that can be deified or it can be made destructive. The, the sort of person that says, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be confined by manners or love of neighbor. I'm, I'm just going to be myself. But there's a, there's a very real sense in which violating one's own integrity and especially uh, violating the call and the giftedness, the stewardship that God has given to someone can be a very destructive thing, is a very destructive thing. And not only that, it also doesn't even work on its own terms. So uh, Seth Godin, who I, I read everything Seth Godin writes, uh, virtually everything that I can find that he writes, and he has in his book, This is Marketing, a discussion that he talks about all the time about the pull to the boring. And this is what he says. This is a quote. The best ideas aren't instantly embraced even the ice cream sundae and the stoplight took years to catch on. That's because the best ideas require significant change. They fly in the face of the status quo, and inertia is a powerful force. And so he says, the challenge for most people who seek to make an impact 
isn't winning over the mass market. It's the micro market. They've bend themselves into a pretzel trying to please the anonymous masses before they have 50 or 100 people who would miss them if they were gone. And while it might be comforting to dream of becoming a Kardashian, it's way more productive to matter to a few instead, end quote. Now, there are a few of us who are followers of Jesus who want to become a Kardashian necessarily, but, uh, but many of us want to find the, the key to pleasing everyone. And uh, there, there are many people who, uh, in order to please everyone, you, you end up being pulled into a way of being boring. And I don't mean ordinary. Ordinary is sanctified and praised in Scripture. Um, the ordinary is something we should, we should seek. I'm talking about boring in a way that Jesus never was and never is. So as Godin puts it, quote, it's tempting to make a boring product or service for everyone, boring because boring is beyond criticism. It meets spec. It causes no tension. Everyone is happy because no one is unhappy. The problem is, he says, that the marketplace of people who are happy with boring is static. They aren't looking for better. New and boring don't easily coexist. And so the people who are happy with boring aren't looking for you. As a matter of fact, they're actively avoiding you, uh, end quote. And so he goes on to talk about how the way that, that people are actually reached is not by saying, let me find something that's going to be acceptable to everyone, but instead speaking to the smallest viable audience. And, and Godin gives some, uh, some examples of that, and he talks about how the tendency that we have to say, in order for something to be worth it, it has to meet no criticism, is impossible. So he will talk about, for instance, why Moby Dick by Herman Melville has one-star Amazon reviews. It's Moby Dick. feel like I didn't like it. And Godin says, well, the response to that shouldn't necessarily be, well, then uh, I'm not going to say anything anymore. It's, well, maybe it's not for you. And he gives ways to, to figure that out and to see that. But the point is, uh, what he's talking about here, he uses the example of the Grateful Dead who didn't design their music for Top 40 Radio. They would, have, they would have failed. Instead, they spoke to a group of people that they wanted to create art for, they wanted to speak to at the smallest viable audience, and they grew a group of people who listened to what it is that they had to say. So, that's really important because it, it resonates with what Scripture tells us is more fundamentally true, that, uh, that the way God works is by speaking to a remnant, and that out of these remnants, God creates multitudes, uh, sometimes multitudes that no man can, can number. And so the idea that the way that I serve is by people-pleasing, and by fear of people, that's what makes you into a hack. And that not only ultimately doesn't work for you, but more importantly, it doesn't serve the people that you're trying to serve. Outlaw Country said, we could try to do uh, exactly what 
the Nashville establishment is doing right now. But who needs that from Willie Nelson? Well, you, you wouldn't even you wouldn't even hear Willie Nelson if he were just singing songs the way that George Reeves uh, was singing songs at the time. Instead, uh, they said we're going to carry out our calling, carry out what it is that God has has gifted us to do. Whether some of them might have recognized uh, God and some of them might not have, but they were willing to do that in a way that would lead to them short-term being shunned, but that's the only way that long-term they are able to speak to uh, the, the rest of us. That's, that's a pattern that we can see throughout history. As a matter of fact, there have been studies that have shown that a minority group can change an ecosystem if just 25% of the people are with them. That can change the ecosystem culturally in all sorts of places. Outlaw Country Music uh, came in and said, we're not going to conform to what is commercially viable right now because we're going to reach back and take aspects of the tradition from the past. We're going to speak to audiences that may not even be here yet, and they're going to send out these messages in a bottle that weren't initially about making a lot of money, although they did. They did make a lot of money, but they made a lot of money because Willie Nelson was not focus grouping what people would want when they listen to a Willie Nelson song. And Waylon Jennings was not putting together uh, statistical data to show him what sorts of Waylon Jennings songs people would, would want to hear. They decided to be Willie Nelson and to be Waylon Jennings and to be Chris Christopherson, to be outside of those norms, not as an act of rebellion or defiance, not because they hated country music, but because they loved it. And that's what changed an entire aspect of the country music uh, tradition. I think there's something that we can learn there, that we can see in a more important way in the life of the church, where you have you have a Christianity, for instance, in the first century that does not simply conform to people's expectations of what a religious system ought to look like, really in all directions, doesn't, doesn't conform to the expectations of uh, the Judaism of the time, in terms of what a Messiah ought to look like, in terms of what uh, what the temple ought to look like, because they were carrying what what uh, they believed, and I believe is a revelation from God. They weren't conforming to the expectations that the Roman Empire would have of what a uh, of what a religion ought to be. Instead, they're they're talking about really bizarre ideas, like monotheism and the resurrection of the body of a crucified man who is Lord over the universe. What carried Christianity forward was not its sameness, although there was connection. They were making those connections. It was its distinctiveness. 
And often the same thing is going to be true in whatever life and calling it is that you have. Sometimes uh, you're going to, in faithfulness to Christ, be the sort of person who is out of step. People aren't going to understand what you're doing, but you're, you're preserving something for a community that you may not even know now. So you don't silence yourself or muzzle yourself on things that you believe God has has given you to say and and to believe. And through that, often God is able to, I I look back and I think of some of the people who have spoken so clearly to me in my life. And often these are people who at the time that they were speaking to me were really lonely because there was no one like them. And you think about how many of the things we think of as cliches. I I read somewhere, I don't even remember where this was, uh, someone uh, talking about uh, reading uh, Henry David Thoreau uh, with a college literature class. And the class said, oh, I just think that, I think they were reading Walden or or I don't know which which uh, maybe maybe they were reading a whole gamut of Thoreau's works, but they said well, there's just so many cliches in here, and uh, the the professor said, "What do you mean by cliches?" And they said, "Well, I like march to a different drummer," and they start they start listing off what they consider to be cliches, and he said, "Don't you realize these are all Thoreau's thoughts?" that were strikingly different at the time, you consider them to be cliches because they're so commonly accepted now. I mean, that that really applies to almost everything. And Outlaw Country Music did that, coming in and saying, as Waylon Jennings said, they're telling us we have to dress a certain way, that we have to sound a certain way, that we have to, uh, that we have to do exactly what the market is wanting and that we have to pretend not to be country music in order to do that. And we have to pretend not to be Texans in their case. We have to pretend all of these things. But I don't think that Hank Williams did it that way. Hank Williams was Hank Williams. And at first, people said, why are you doing it that way? And then later, it became the Hank Williams way. Now, Outlaw Country Music did not comprehensively or permanently transform that commercial ecosystem. So it's not the sort of story that you would see in a movie that would say, well, you've got the the big, greedy corporate executives who want to make money. Of course they want to make money. It's a business. That's what it's it's there for. If they, if they didn't have concern for making money and for uh, and for carrying out the business, they would be irresponsible. Nor did you have this freeing of people from this non-commercial and purely artistic form of, of music in outlaw country. Not at all. As a matter of fact, Waylon Jennings kind of winked at those realities in uh, the song that he wrote and sang long time ago. When he says, me and old Willie, Lordy, we've been sold and bought. I guess y'all heard about some sort of system that we fought. We ain't the only outlaws, just the only ones they caught. They tried to run us off, but Willie's slow. And I kept running a long time ago. Uh, So they ultimately became something of the establishment. 
But the Nashville establishment at the time didn't think it needed reform. They were selling records. They were making money. And Chris Christopherson, brilliant philosopher, Chris Christopherson, he's writing uh, songs based on Voltaire's Candide. Anybody look at them and say, well, that's not going to sell records and that's never going to sell records. It seemed not to be the, the future. And so as as one uh, journalist put it, the Opry audience was the Nashville Sound's target demographic, and no one's ever eager to fix a cash machine that isn't broken, but threads wear imperceptibly at first before they rip, end quote. Now, that's true even for threads that are studded with rhinestone, those nudie suits that they used to wear uh, at the time. The outlaw genre brought an infusion of change. And without that, the music form likely would have succeeded all the way to oblivion. It brought a change into the, the, the very thing that the Nashville sound was, was uh, holding to, a homogenous, aging, cultural cul-de-sac with little relevance to those who were not already fans. And that means that the music form would have gone away. Outlaw Country came in and said, we want to uh, speak as much as we can to the people who are here now, but we want to do it in connection with the people who came before, and we want to think about the audiences that aren't here yet, and we're going to speak to them. I think in there, there's there's something of a parable. Thanks for listening to The Cross and Jukebox. In this episode, if you haven't yet subscribed, uh, please uh, do so wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you can find the show notes, including some details you might have missed. And let me know in the comments or by email what song or artist or aspect of music that you would like for us to discuss here. Until then, onward and walk the line.